Hey, Forge family. In podcast number five, Paul the Apostle, who's imprisoned in Rome, he's waiting for and he's appealed to Caesar. He, he writes to the Colossian church about his suffering for the sake of the gospel and for them. As he is a proclaimer of the truth of the risen Christ, so too were to be the Colossians, and so too is to be Forge Church. See, we're included as proclaimers. Paul wrote that he was in an intense struggle, in, we believe, to be in, that he was in prayer on behalf of the believers in the Lycus Valley. And then he shifts to the mystery revealed to the followers of Jesus that God loves Gentiles too. That is wrapped up in the statement, quote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul continues, urging watchfulness so that none of his readers get swept up into delusion by persuasive argument. In closing out of verse 5, Paul spoke of being spiritually present with those believers in Colossae and that he could see their faith and solid battle array. They were joined together and stable in their faith. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who brought the Father's love to display it in bodily form and who died to make atonement for all mankind, we love you. We would serve you now. Thank you for drawing us to yourself and anchoring us to the scriptures. Keep coming, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Okay, Forge, grab your Bibles, notebooks, coffee cups, and settle into the arms of the Spirit who longs to teach us how to walk in Christ. Podcast number six starts in Colossians 2, Verse 6, Paul says to his readers, At a set point in time, you received Christ Jesus the Lord. This phrase, which identifies Messiah Jesus as Lord, as Kyrios, only occurs here in Colossians 2, 6 in Paul's writings. It's a one-off for Paul. And it's followed by, keep on walking in him. Keep on showing by your life that he is present in you. You're able to do that because God, because Paul writes, you've been rooted. Now that's, that's a perfect tense verb, which means it's a past completed action with present continuous results. You have been rooted in him and you will remain so. You are also now constantly being built up in him. Paul uses the building imagery to point to the building up of the body of Christ. This he sees as the new covenant temple in which the Lord himself dwells. The Colossians had the doctrines of the person and work of Christ Jesus transmitted to them and those teachings had been received. <clears throat> Kent Hughes uh, wrote about growing up in an arid, dry country town surrounded by hundreds of thousands of tumbleweeds. See, th that particular weed would sprout in the spring and grow to be a four to five foot ball 
of vegetation. Then it would wither and die, attached to the earth only by a tiny stalk and root system. When the first big winds of fall would start to blow, those balls of dead weed would skitter, bound, fly, and jounce their way through town, blown at the mercy of the wind. And I remember driving in Colorado when I was six or seven years old, and out of the corner of your eye, you could see one of them coming. This is a five-foot ball that's just bounding and, and flying towards you. It jumps over the snow fences, and it just zips across the freeway right in front of you. <clears throat> now, in contrast, Paul says the Colossians were deeply rooted and would stay so. They were not at the mercy of some wayward wind of doctrine. Paul continues in verse 7 that the Colossians had been established, made continuously firm in regard to their faith. And he finishes verse 7 with their overflowing thanksgiving, their gratitude to Jesus Christ the Lord. I want you to hear what Billy Graham has to say about some of this. He wrote in The Annals of America, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Likewise, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, it's interesting to note that the apostles preached the Lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 5 and chapter 13. On the other hand, it's amazing to note that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus, 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ, six times, all in the same book. The gospel is this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Paul would add to that. Because you are rooted in the Lord, you are built up in Him, you are firmly established and solid in your faith in Him, it's then you begin to overflow with thanksgiving to Him. So I want you to hear the scriptures that speak plainly about thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And Colossians 3.15 and 16, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. <clears throat> now, how many of us uh, around us, in, in the marketplace around us, in our neighborhoods, quote, know about Jesus through some evangelical gospel exposure. 
and yet how many say that they've grown out of such simple things and they've become post-Christian. Some have even returned to be pagans. False teachers have little success around thankful people. The opposite happens, actually. The thankful ones often draw others out of false teachings to Christ. Now, in verse 8, I think we ought to read verse 8. Yeah, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty, de empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So right away, Paul says, beware. Be constantly on watch. The grammar here speaks of imminent, present peril. And family, that peril hasn't gone away in 2,000 years. And then Paul continues. He says, see to it that no one, no one takes you captive, that you are not booty, that you're not battle spoils or captives or slaves led away as prey through the philosophy and empty deception. In fact, there's actually a, um, a specific word and it's translated his. So you can actually read verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through his philosophy and empty deception. So apparently Paul had a name. He doesn't mention it, but he knows who is the lead heretic in Colossae. And, and this philosophy that, that's being taught, see, it's the word Sophia, and originally, Sophia meant, and it still means, love of wisdom. Originally, it was positive. You know, it was a good thing to love wisdom. But as it's used here in context by Paul, he speaks of it as vain speculation. The false teacher uses the term Sophia to describe his system of beliefs and practices, both ascetic and mystical. Now, in the mid-1980s, let me give you an example of someone who's led away as booty, led away as a captive. Okay, in the mid-1980s, the Arizona Republic interviewed a man named Gordon Hall. At the time, he was the Nautilus sports equipment tycoon. Okay, and this is how the interview went. He's worth more than $100 million, he says because it was his goal to be worth more than $100 million before the age of 33. There are other goals. By the time he's 38, he plans to be a billionaire. And later on, he claimed that he would become a trillionaire. By the time his earthly body expires, he is convinced he can live to 120 years old. He will assume that he... He will assume that he believes to be his... He, start again. He will assume that he believes to be his just heavenly reward. And that is, Gordon Hall will be a god. Quote, we have always existed as intelligences, as spirits, he says. We are down here to gain a body. As man is now God want, now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a god. And I believe it. That is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a god. 
My God in heaven creates worlds and universes. I believe I can do anything, too. Gordon Hall went on to be a failed land developer. His Nautilus Sports Gym things failed because he sold lifetime memberships to such a great extent that he vastly exceeded the capacities of his gyms. He became a developer of a phony securities offering for a used car network. And ultimately, and he perhaps even today, is incarcerated as a prisoner for defrauding the IRS and running a Ponzi scheme in North Carolina. Yes, highly intelligent, larger than life, and deceived. Paul continues in verse 8, stating that the empty deception and vain speculation were, number one, fueled by the traditions of men. The Greek word is paradosis, and it means that that's passed down generationally. Well, certainly the Colossians were at ground zero for the Phrygian works and worship of Sibylle, Earth Mother, for the implanted Greek mystery religions, for the Roman gods that were brought in by the legions, for Jewish mysticism, for the leftover Persian gods and idols from their, from their occupation hundreds of years before, and finally, for the worship of Caesar. See, all of those passed on generationally. And then number two, Paul says that there's a demonic push to the philosophy and empty deceptions. The phrase in Greek is tos toikeia tu kosmi. And, and translation committees have a hard time with treating this as it's actually written and referred to in ancient, in ancient manuscripts. See, they call it the elemental principles of the world. Okay, that could be wind, water, fire, earth, you know, the earth. It could be it could be elemental principles of governance and, and, dispen and dispensing power. I don't believe those things. I believe what Paul is speaking here is that there's referring to a description of elemental spirit beings who work with fallen men and fallen creation. These two, the traditions of men and the demonic influencers, stand opposed to the risen Christ. In verse 9, in contrast, Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, is full, full of the complete essence and nature of God the Father. And that fullness has settled permanently in Christ to dwell in him in a human body. Now granted, a crucified, resurrected, glorified, seated at the right hand of God, human body. In verse 10, Paul continues about this fullness, this pleroma. This, this was the operant, one of the operant words you know, that the false teacher, teachers were saying, well, you can get more, you can get more full. There's, there's more, there's higher, there's amazing mystical experiences. It's part of the pleroma. Okay, and Paul says this fullness and, uh, that was in Christ, he's stating that the Colossians and all followers of Christ by faith are made full of this power of God. Obviously, that's by Holy Spirit. Jesus, the risen Christ, is head over all rule and authority. 
Jesus is the satisfier of all spiritual want. All you need, you have in Christ. Here too, Christ is alluded to as first in time and first in rank over all created beings who would possibly express rule and power. Verse 11 starts with another and. So let's read verse 11. It says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now in Israel, circumcision was a ritual for an eight-day-old baby boy. And it was the outward symbol of identity for the Jews. Here, Paul says that the Colossians had already been circumcised by Holy Spirit with a circumcision not made with hands. That is to say, not at the whim or the demand or necessity of any ritual or, or of mankind. Because with this metaphor, it was a circumcision of the heart. Not external, but inner, internal, inward. It cut away the carnal, sinful nature and its power. The word for removal is one that speaks of putting off an old garment. In this case, the indwelling sin which is rendered inoperable. You slough it off and it ceases to have power over you. The power of the sin nature in us has been broken and only has influence on us when we go back and choose to sin. That's when we re-empower it. Verse 12 finishes the big sentence that started in verse 9. Paul says that his believing readers, you know, that they have been buried with Christ in baptism. All who are plunged into the waters of baptism are identified with Christ in his death and being raised up from the water, we too are identified in his resurrection. Ford's Church, that's a, that's a critical thing. Please, if you've not been baptized, please consider doing so. Because as, as we do that, we put our faith in the cleansing death of Christ for the pardon of past and future sins. He is the symbol, he, he, here, excuse me, here is the symbolic burial and the actual resurrection to newness of life in Christ. Verse 13, Paul again points out to the Colossians that they were dead in their sins. Greek word is paraptoma. It means a falling beside the way, a lapse, a deviation from the truth and uprightness, a trespass. He turns and he says, you Colossians were dead sinners with no hope of approaching a holy God. And you harbored and nurtured your sin natures in your selfish flesh. But Christ Jesus made the Colossians alive. They were quickened together with him, just as he was made alive. And the reason they're now alive in Christ, Jesus had by grace forgiven all their sins, their trespasses, their transgressions. Grace. Grace is the ultimate surfactant. 
It dissolves all those bondages to past sin and guilt and shame. Verse 14. In forgiving their sins, Christ blotted out, he canceled, he rubbed out, he wiped out, he erased the charges that were on the certificate of debt held against us. And it was a debt that we and the Colossians could never pay. This is a picture of what a high-level scribe would do to erase errors on a spreadsheet, if you will. So he would take a little muriatic acid and dab it on a papyrus document and then wipe it away with a damp cloth, removing the ancient inks that were made by burning ivory cork and gum. The other image is a strike-through, a, a mark that through the debtor's copy of the original, and it's the debtor's copy of the original copy of a slash in ink to show that the debt had been paid or forgiven. Here, Christ steps in and seizes the charges, the accounts made against each of us and every one of us. Obviously, those charges are made by the law. Our sins could not be paid for, for there was no redemption in the law. Christ grasped the certificate condemning all humanity and nailed it to the cross, marking it paid, canceled, forgiven, never to be presented against us again. <clears throat> Dr. Ed Silvoso says it this way. He describes Satan as holding the certificate of debt, the one that listed all our sins under the law of God that had separated us from God and which condemned all of us to death. In the instant, in, in the resurrection moment, Christ snatches the legal document of the unpayable debt and nails it to the cross. Satan shrieks that Christ can't do that, that the law of God sets the rules under which mankind is condemned and the condemned are his. Jesus responds, I changed the rules. In verse 15, when Christ arose from death, he was compelled to present himself at the heavenly mercy seat as the great high priest who had offered his own blood to fully accomplish atonement. To do so, Christ had to pass through the second heavens, the domain of Satan and his demons, who, who stood to oppose him, to resist him. But by the power of the cross and his own shed blood, Christ disarms them. All those demonic rulers and authorities, literally he shrugs them off, he divests himself of them, and passing through their midst, he makes a display, a triumph of them. The word triumph pictures a Roman victory celebration lasting for days. First, the statuary, the art, the exquisite things that have been captured in battle and in looting the enemy. They were, they were paraded in, in cart after cart after cart after cart as the watching, cheering citizens of Rome you know, were in awe of what passed in front of them. Next, carts of armor that had been polished until they glistened. That, that armor was rolled cart after cart after cart after cart. You know, a symbol of absolute victory. 
Then comes the treasures. The gold, the silver, the gemstones, the ivory. Next, the servants of the vanquished king are pushed along as they cry out for mercy, followed by the children of the conquered king. The king himself, if he is still living, is loaded into a cart, dressed in black, and rolled through the streets. And lastly, there are thousands of slaves, roped together, marched forward, some toward death, some toward the slave market, to the galleys, to the salt mines, to the refineries. See, this triumph spoke of absolute victory. Such was the triumph over Satan by the cross. All right, Ford's family, the question I have for you uh, is out of verses 6 and 7. It deals with that last statement. It says, are we overflowing with thanksgiving? If you have a hitch in you, look just above there. Look up into verses 6 and 7. Are you walking in him? Do you sense your absolute rootedness in the faith? Are you built up into the body and established? If any of those questions come up flatline, get back to where you received Christ because he indeed is Lord. You need to be reconnected again with him. Next, Paul and myself would urge you not to get taken captive by empty, highfalutin, greater knowledge offers and cult-like practices. So heads up out there, there are cunning spirits that would trip you up. And lastly, do you sense the fullness of Christ within you? Keep pursuing him and his ways. All right, let's pray. Triumphant Jesus, you lead us on to the Father. May your victories in and after the cross be ours as well. Lord, we would be those who have a fragrance of life to life about us. Thank you for the cross that makes all this possible and present. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge Church, I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.